Hi, this is Roger Green, executive producer and host of Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This week, we are offering three separate conversations from our episode, How COVID-19 is Changing Patient Management and Clinical Trials. In this conversation, the second one, the surfers and our guest, Dr. Manal Abdul-Malik, consider the economic costs and values of enhanced telemedicine and mobile deliver testing technology, and then move on to consider critical success factors in making these innovations patient-friendly and motivating patients to take advantage of them. Spoiler alert, colors, one-letter grades, and competitions all motivate patients differently. Hope you enjoy this. Hope it pushes you to think differently. Drug developers, investors, researchers, and corporate executives wrestle weekly to understand what is happening in commercial development of NASH medications. Join hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Stephen Harrison, liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, and forecasting and pricing guru Roger Green as they discuss the issues affecting the evolving NASH market from their own unique perspectives on the Surfing the NASH Tsunami podcast. One of the questions I started asking myself was, where would the money come from? And where that pushes me to is a consideration of who is a high-value patient and a high-value patient where you can identify the person who would pay for that value. So, Manal, I think you started on clinical research, actually, when you started talking today in the first place or or shortly after you started. Clinical research would be a high-value patient to the drug company because you want to keep everybody you can in the trial and you want to keep their data as high quality as possible. So... That would be a place where if you needed to spend money on building deliver trucks, there might be a faster return. I'm sorry to interrupt. I, I don't see um, a clinical research is just inclusive of industry-sponsored drug trials. We certainly have many ongoing initiatives that are both industry and, and federally funded studies. And, and when there are sponsored trials, certainly the, there brings an element of, of timelines, case finding, case risk stratification, access, and and, and sponsored studies of any type, I think, put a different twist on how we care for patients and how we, we, we continue to propel the mission of academics and science forward despite existing obstacles. Okay, so that's another source. Same idea obtained, though. I think that's a higher value patient than a typical patient anywhere in America because there's an investment in the trial and the trial infrastructure and the value of the knowledge that winds up exceeding simply the treatment of that patient. So that was one thought I had. Second thought I had was that if diabetics are a good target, what do we know about where diabetics go to get their blood work done? Because if they go to labs, for example, then it might be possible to work something out with a lab where the deliver van shows up on days that have a certain volume of diabetic patients being tested, or maybe they try to organize schedules so the diabetic patients are more likely to be tested at specific days and times, and then you would bring the van there so that you would know that you were getting a lot more use out of creating the van than if you simply were going after random patients. I think in the end, Manal, that isn't where you started, and I think it winds up where you were, which is can, when we have to go see patients, you know, can we bring the technology to them? And I think it's now portable enough that we can. But if the question is how do you prove out the value of the investment, then it would seem to me that those might be two places to start. I think they're definitely sort of good pockets to choose. And I think Stephen's regularly said that the low-hanging fruit we know are going to yield the highest percentage of patients who are positive. And I think it's not a case of just 
randomly screening people. I suppose if we look at cost effectivity in a different way, we're in the middle of a one in a hundred year pandemic. But one of the things I was going to bring to the meeting tonight was the fact that COVID-19 as an infectious disease, it's a perfect storm because it's been exacerbated by the other pandemic, which are non-communicable diseases, which are one of the world's biggest problems. And I think if we look at cost effectivity of the role of the liver in the cause of these significant non-communicable diseases of the world, which are type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, high cholesterol, hypertension, then any screening that we do to target patients, to find those patients for drug trials, to be able to reverse liver fat, to be able to look at lifestyle changes has got to be way more cost effective than what we're doing at the moment in treating the pandemic that we we had warnings of. We've had MERS and we've had MARS, um, SARS first wave. We knew these were the highest risk patients. We chose to to do not a lot about it. Non-communicable diseases are quite rightly now racking up as the world's biggest targets. But it's actually like shutting the stable door after the horse has bolted. It's a great endeavour, but will we get out of silo health and our own disease areas to actually target multi-diseases in one individual? And I think I can go around and we can have operatives regularly in vans targeting the right people, going to GP practices, areas of health. And I would see it as a mobile operation because you don't want a scanning machine in every centre. That's not cost effective. For the times they sit on the shelf, it's a real problem, certainly for the National Health Service. Most of them collect dust because they're protected by liver units and only liver staff can use them. They don't share with drug and alcohol. So we need to be more collegiate in looking for the right patients. But I think screening and the prevention of diseases has to become, um, for me, as a wellness person, I don't think people with liver disease should become patients or should suffer illness if they get enough opportunity to make a change, to have the right information and to have the input of Stephen Manal and all of the experts at an earlier time point. So the resources to me, I, I think it's a no-brainer with non-communicable diseases driving an infectious disease like COVID-19 that I would hope this is only one in the next 100 years, but if we don't do it correctly, this is just the start. As I'm listening, I'm thinking of some of the work that Ian Rowe has done and come here and talked about, about simplifying screening processes, cutting costs, improving patient satisfaction, and identifying more patients. Is that the kind of process that you'd want to put in front of what you're describing? Uh, absolutely. I think at the moment, when we look at cost effectivity of Fibroscan in the NHS, everybody, every study that I've seen published talks about Fibroscan being £50 or it's X or it's Y. What it doesn't account for is the £750 of different appointments from a GP to the blood tests to the specialist hepatologist to then get the referral for the Fibroscan. Whereas a lot of those patients, we refer straight back because they just have soft fatty livers or they have soft non-fatty livers. That was a 700 to £900 pound appointment. That person didn't need. So bringing it into the right area, not only secondary care, but primary care, but also cardiology, health and well-being centres, let people know. Dietetics, if I was a dietitian, I've said it before, why change somebody's diet for diabetes, fatty liver disease, cardiovascular disease? 
if you only monitor the blood pressure, the BMI, the muscle and fat layers, actually we can now measure internal fat, albeit crudely, it is getting more and more accurate. And people respond extremely well. The engagement of things like FibroScan is high. I did an event not so long ago whereby everybody was competing with each other to get their score down. You just don't get that with a blood test. And that motivation that drives them is very, very vital to the outcomes that you get when you maintain weight loss. And I think those things... We've never, I've never seen in research and evidence the behavioural change that FibroScan or any form of sort of scan like Sonic Insights is a very visual scan. I think that would have a similar effect. But when people start competing against each other to get their outcome better and get drive it down, then you've got engagement in their own health. And I think that is such a key outcome to me is patients' education, and people's education, because I would hope most people don't need to be a patient eventually. So, Stephen Manal, how would the kind of thing Louise is talking about work differently in the U.S., where you have maybe more access to equipment, but more, but different kinds of demand than in the U.K., where simply simplifying the screening process and saving money per test is a tremendously valuable thing for NHS? Let me just comment on a couple of things that, that Louise said. And as I'm sitting here reflecting on my patients in clinic, and then I'm thinking back to other tests and, and what gets people excited. So I, I don't know. Remember with fatty liver that almost everybody we see is completely asymptomatic. They don't walk into our clinics going, Doc, I've got fatty liver disease. You're going to have to work me up for that because I, I feel bad today. My, you know, I, I'm, I'm fatigued. I'm nauseated. My right upper quadrant area hurts. I feel like my liver is inflamed with fat and you've got to fix me today because I'm at risk of diabetes and I might progress to liver disease and I might die from it. They don't walk in saying that. They are, for the most part, while patient-reported outcome measures that Zoberionasi has been a pioneer and leading for NAFLD will suggest, and rightfully so, that these patients have underlying issues at baseline. They've adapted to those underlying issues, and for the most part, when you ask them how they feel, they will not complain. They will not say that there's something that's bothering them. Now, we know there's 10% will have right upper quadrant pain. There's other potential uh, issues linked to fatty liver. There's certainly coexisting medical conditions that are linked to fatty liver. But by and large, until people decompensate, they don't come to the doctor with a liver issue. So just getting a set of liver enzymes, patients in large part are conditioned to get their lipid panel and their kidney panel and their their sodium, bicarb, potassium, chloride, all that when they go to the doc and the doc says, hey, everything looks good. You're not anemic. Your kidney function's okay. And your lipids are fine. And and so when we say, and they also look at a their list of liver enzymes often, and what they focus on is what's highlighted in red or what has an H out beside it or what has an L out beside it. And they ask the doctor specifically, what about this lab? It has an H or it's red or it's highlighted. And nine times out of 10, the doctor will say, that's no big deal. Don't worry about it. It could be an erythrocyte count that's slightly elevated. It could be... Uh 
you know, a neutrophil count that's low or slightly elevated or a lymphocyte count or something where we don't put a lot of stock into the result. We're not talking about a potassium of two. We're talking about a potassium of 3.9 that gets flagged as low. And Manal and I are not going to sit there and make a big deal about it. So what happens with liver enzymes is the exact same thing. They'll be flagged maybe as high and they'll go to the primary care and they'll say, what's up with this? Why is there an H beside my ALT? And the doc's like, yeah, it's just slightly elevated. It's probably nothing. Uh, you know, it could be uh, something that, that you were exposed to. Maybe you had the flu. Maybe maybe it was your statin or something. So let's hold that and check you again in another month or two. And so they're conditioned to not be concerned about it. But imagine a scenario where they're given an image of their liver or a report of an image of their liver and there's an abnormality. And I say this all the time on the podcast because it's real. I say this in clinic. I go over that with my patient and I say, take this home and put it on your refrigerator as motivation to do the right thing. In other words, eat less, run more, modify your lifestyle, etc. And I think Perspectum designed their multiparametric MRI in the exact same format. Green is good. Red is bad. Orange is pump the brakes, we might have a problem. Because people like to see that. And I can tell you I've done enough multiparametric MRIs to know how much my patients like those color-coded livers. Just like they like seeing a copy of their fiber scan with a cap and a KPA, and they like to compare when their cap drops below 280 and their KPA drops below 6. They can look at that and very pragmatically say they've done something good for their liver despite the fact that they don't feel bad. They understand understand that there's a problem and they've mitigated that problem or attempted to mitigate the problem. So I think that's a huge opportunity for disease state awareness to be able to go out into the community and say, do you want to know your liver health? It's cheap. It's free, maybe, and it's readily obtainable and we can do it in 10 to 12 minutes. And, and I think the real issue for the panel here today and for the community at large is how do we affect that from a cost perspective, from a personnel perspective? If we have a van, for instance, that has a piccolo and a fiber scan, that has a coordinator or some tech, on, you don't need a tech to do a fiber scan, just somebody that's done enough of them to know what they're doing and a, and a physician or a physician extender or nurse practitioner, a PA. If you have all that, how do you get the patients to show up? You can't just, you know, go to the supermarket and park outside and say, hey, come get your liver health checked. I mean, I think there needs to be some link to, you know, maybe an initiative we work through with our patient advocacy groups, the GLI or the Fatty Liver Foundation. We hope you have enjoyed this conversation. If you have any questions about it or comments about the episode in general, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We are releasing two more conversations from this episode. Our next new episode will release on Thursday, January 21st. In honor of Martin Luther King Day, it will explore special challenges in treating disadvantaged populations in the U.S., the U.K., and other parts of the world, focusing, not surprisingly, on fatty liver disease and other metabolic syndromes. Stay safe and see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Drug developers, investors, researchers, and corporate executives wrestle weekly to understand what is happening in commercial development of NASH medications. Join hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Stephen Harrison, liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, and forecasting and pricing guru Roger Green as they discuss the issues affecting the evolving NASH market from their own unique perspectives on the Surfing the NASH Tsunami podcast.